When I was a very young, very lonely writer at the Nashville Tennessean, a couple of female colleagues pulled me aside one day and asked if I wanted to play volleyball with their friends. Sure, I said. A few minutes later, my editor called me into his office. Jeff, he said, you do not want to play volleyball with them. They're fundamentalist Christians who see you as the new Jewish guy in town. They want to convert you. Trust me, don't play volleyball. Okay, I said, I won't. Earlier today, I spoke with my old editor, the first time in a while. We were both bemoaning getting older and the inevitability of death. See, I told him, if you'd only let me play volleyball, I'd be a born-again Christian right now, convinced of a future eternal life, and we wouldn't be having this depressing-as-fuck conversation. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Morgan Campbell, the former Toronto Star sports writer and current senior contributor to CBC Sports, whose career has been a wide-ranging, diverse, and friggin' fascinating adventure. This is episode number 192. Let's sling some yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. All right, All right Morgan. I was just saying it's funny. It took you a little bit to get on the Zoom, and I was thinking about something here. I really was. Here we are. We're two guys in our 40s. We both entered journalism, presumably in the 90s. And um, you and I both have had different sort of parts of our career. You know, you were a newspaper guy at the Toronto Star for a long time. Now you're at CBC Sports. You do all sorts of different things in media. I literally was watching your TED Talk a few minutes ago. I was a guy who came up in newspaper. I went to magazine. Then I went to books, podcasting, blah, blah, blah. What are the keys to sustainability in our gig? Good question. There are different things that allow you to survive industry trends and regime changes at at given companies. Like one, if you are just really good at identifying power, cozying up to power and staying underneath the wing of power, you can survive. You can survive in this industry for a long time. And I'm sure we've all seen people like that who rise through the ranks despite being not that good and just always have a job always keep getting promoted, always keep failing up. So there's that. If you're not good at that, like what has helped me is that I've just always been adaptable. So I have things that like people feel like are a specialty of mine. So like sports are a specialty, feature writing is a specialty. But around that, I've always had to be adaptable and, and, and on the lookout for either different types of, of sports stories or finding different ways to like recast, repurpose my skill set or add to that skill set. You know, for a couple of years, I covered Major League Baseball. And so in one sense, you can become a baseball lifer. And a lot of guys do that. More women are doing that right now as well. Um, But for me, baseball was kind of like a jumping off point for other things. So much of it just has to do with being nimble and adaptable. Because if you're not going to be the baseball lifer and I wasn't going to be the baseball lifer, I still had to figure out what I was going to do after covering baseball and how I was going to use that to work for me in the future. So nimbleness and adaptability it is sort of like boxing in that you have your plan a but you also have to have a plan b or a plan c if you're fighting someone that's really good so in in this instance we're in a really tough industry so to stay alive in this industry you got to have plan a plan b and plan c like if you would ask me 20 years ago the kind of career i had envisioned i would have envisioned the career that you just laid out which to use an analogy from a different sport it's like running um, like elliot kipchoge you start out, you're running 5K on the track. 
and then that pace gets a little hot for you, you graduate to the 10K on the track. And from the 10K on the track, you graduate to the marathon. So that was kind of the, the career I envisioned for myself where I'd write for newspapers, then write for magazines. You know, each, each step up the ladder is, a, you know, the stories get longer. Um, and then from there, go into writing books. But the way it's worked is I've done a bunch of stuff in the newspaper industry, some magazine stuff, some broadcast stuff around the newspaper stuff I've done. And now, like, I'm 44, out of newspapers, finally getting, getting to work on a book. But I don't know that I'm that far. Like, the place that I am now, I don't know that I would have... I'm at the place where I am right now, kind of regardless of how I would have gotten there otherwise, if that makes sense. So I, I've never said this on this podcast and I barely told this to anyone, but I guess I drank my coffee and I'm feeling, I think I'm driven in part by a fear of being obsolete. <laughs> I really am like my, my wife is like, I can't wait to retire and I can do jewelry and I can paint. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't, I don't think I'll be able to do that. I think I could see myself blowing my head. At, like, I don't think I could, I feel like I am always, nervous about becoming obsolete and that actually drives me and that pushes me and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Do you have that at all? Or do you feel that at all or zero? Ooh, good question. Um, well, what I am is aware of it, that I came along in this industry as like one of, if not the like last generation of people who could make a living in the newspaper industry from the beginning of the career till the end. And so, yeah, it didn't take long you know, for the last 10 years, you, you've been able to read the trends and then figure out where to go from there. Now, in terms of becoming obsolete, I don't think obsolete is necessarily the way I look at it. I just knew I just had to keep adding to my skill set, not because I was necessarily scared of, uh, <laughs> let me put it this way, like the way the newspaper industry was evolving, like I didn't want to keep up with the newspaper industry and like, I didn't want to be current, whatever staying current with newspapers was, was going to mean because right. I was burnt out on, on newspapers. So it's not necessarily a fear of being obsolete, but it is like a recognition that the thing I was doing wasn't going to last forever, especially in the newspaper industry, especially here in Canada. There's like for more than a decade, there's just been a really intense um, hollowing out of the middle class of journalists that's really well said. Yeah. So what you wind up with, with are like big name people that make a lot of money and get the opportunities and the opportunities accrue to them. And like the more opportunity you have, the more that's going to compound. And then there are young, hungry people that managers love because you can burn them out and they don't ask for a lot. And then for someone like me, like I wasn't well known. I was well enough known amongst other journalists, but I wasn't famous. Um, I was just good at my job. But there were just fewer and fewer <laughs> places in the industry for someone like me. And so... Yeah, I did it, but for, you know, for a few years, I've had my eye on doing something else. And then this time last year, I was able to uh, take a voluntary buyout from the star and then start exploring that stuff from the Toronto star here in Toronto. I almost feel like what you just said kind of blew my mind a little bit. It's very interesting. So I have moments of true anger about the Skip Baylesses and the Stephen A. Smiths and the Max Kellermans, the kind of hmm. professional yellers who make all this money. And meanwhile, ESPN or Fox, whatever, they're, all the reporters are just yes. out of work. Maybe getting mad at Stephen A and Skip isn't fair because they're just doing what, I mean, in a way they're, they're almost like the big college program, football program paying for gymnastics and water polo. In a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, um, yes and no one. I just can't blame them for doing Listen, If the market is going to pay them what it pays them, 
if someone came to me and said, I'm going to quadruple your salary for doing the exact same thing, I would say, of course. If someone came to me and said, I'm going to increase your salary 10 times, but you have to become a, a parody of what you were two years ago. I'd be like, well, how many figures is it? If, that, if that's seven figures, then I will become a parody of myself. And then the thing is like, there's nothing wrong with having a price as long as that price justifies making a parody of yourself. I'd have a bigger problem with people doing that for the same amount of money that you make as a reporter. I can't blame those, those guys for cashing in on what the market says there's a bunch of cash for doing. And, and what they're doing isn't really related to what I've been doing or what you do, um, or even what other people at those networks do. It's sort of the difference between being a boxer and a professional wrestler. Was there a moment at the star or period at the star when you were first sort of aware, oh shit, this is not going the right way? Um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't call it one moment. It was always there, just kind of operating in the background. When like every year revenue is getting lower, every year print circulation is declining, but there's no real concrete plan to boost revenue on the digital side. Uh, successive regimes thinking that they can just cut their way to success. But that happened, you know, over a period of years. So it was never a moment like the, the moment for me was that every year, almost every year, they would offer voluntary buyouts, right? And again, if this, is, and there was uh, a past publisher said, this is just going to be part of the process going forward. And I thought to myself, that's not a sign of, 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 of a healthy company. Yeah. If they're saying once every year or so, it's going to be like uh, Shirley Jackson, the lottery, right? Once every year we draw numbers, when y'all getting stoned and that's it. But um, so basically from that point, every time they would offer a buyout, I would email HR and say, if I took this buyout, how much would I get? And then I basically put the company on the clock in terms of getting a promotion. Because what I was at the start was just up against the glass ceiling. Um, and the decision makers recognized it, but just didn't feel like doing anything about it for any number of reasons. So I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to have my two little scales. Either they promote me or they get me to more than one year's salary in a buyout. Whichever of these happens first, that's the path I'm going to take. Um, but after like the first couple of years of doing that dance, I could tell that that glass ceiling wasn't going to disappear. So then this past time, uh, this time last year, they said, hey, we're offering buyouts. Who wants one? Sent an email. How much will I get? They sent it back to me. 53 weeks salary. I'm like, I'm gone. Wow. And that was that. So the, the, the moment was when they sent me back that email saying 53 weeks salary. But in terms of not having confidence in the direction of the business, that was a constant. That wasn't a variable. Did it hurt you to leave? No, it was time. Because there's, there's just a lot of stuff I wanted to be able to do and I couldn't do it tied to that job. So I'd gotten everything I was going to get from that job. And like, it was a good place to spend 18 years. To me, the best place in Canadian journalism to have spent, the eight, to have spent 18 years, but I just knew it didn't have to be 19 or 20. I just watched much of your TED Talk. You did a TED Talk mm -hmm. in 2017. TEDx Talk. Let's, not, let's TEDx. not get those people sued. Thank you. Yes, TEDx exactly. Uh, race sports and telling true stories. Yes. I was thinking about something. The first episode ever of this podcast several years ago was a friend of mine, Howard Bryant. Uh, yes. ESPN. And Howard's a brilliant writer. He's, he's the best. Yes. 
And I remember talking to him about something that I feel like we do in journalism all the time. And I guess we, in a way, I'm referring to white journalists in America, which is we take a Howard Bryant, we take a Morgan Campbell, and we decide that they're going to be our experts on black anything. And we'll be like, yeah. so what's it like to be a black journalist? What's it like to be a black blah, blah, blah? What's it like to be a blah, blah, blah? And it becomes this thing that's, number one, really lazy, and two, indicates that you would have nothing else to talk about except like a black <laughs> experience. Of the you know, like, I really do mean this. I feel like if we have an openly gay reporter and a newspaper's like, you're just going to cover gay issues, all right? That's because you're gay, and that's what you're going to, this is your box. So you're gonna, and how it used to be with women reporters. You're only going to cover women's yeah. tennis, women's go. It just feels like this thing that's been there for years, but maybe I'm overthinking it. Um, what I would say is there is always going to be a manager or a decision maker that only views you as that. But you also have, if you're smart and ambitious and resourceful, you can be a lot more than that in ways that mean something to readers, in ways that mean something to other journalists, in ways that whichever manager gives you this opportunity uh, uh, in a really patronizing way, doesn't even understand like the type of impact you're actually making. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, someone could say, hey, Morgan, cover this because you're black. And I could go do that TEDx talk. And that TEDx talk would resonate with a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. But like the manager who thinks they're just putting me in the black box would not even recognize why it resonates with other people. But I'm not doing it for that manager. I'm just taking the opportunity and running with it. Um, the other thing, and I might've made this point in a TEDx talk, is that like newsrooms need to be, need to become more diverse just because of the self-evident value of diversity. Now, two sides to that coin. One is that as the non-white person, you know, reporting in Canada where most of the people are white, like I report across cultural lines every day. So it's not an excuse for your white reporters to write bad stories about people who aren't white just because those people aren't white, because every non-white reporter has to do that all the time. But two, and especially in the aftermath of George Floyd and this racial reckoning, and every publication wanted something. like, and I, and I talk about this all the time. After a big moment of racial reckoning like that, every publication in the country has every Black journalist's phone number for two weeks. And then after that, it's business as usual. But, you know, I was talking to another journalist who was a little bit conflicted about having to write all these Black stories. And what I said to him was, uh, like, do you like that story? Are you passionate about that story? Do you know about that story? He's like, yeah. But I'm worried about, you know, same thing about getting put into the box. And I'm like, think about it this way. That issue is hot right now. If you don't write that story, somebody else will, and it'll be somebody who doesn't know as much about the story as you do. It's not as passionate about the story as you do, who doesn't tell the story as well as you do. So then you lose out because somebody else gets that byline. And if it's a freelance project, somebody else gets that paycheck. And then the readers lose out because they get a second rate story instead of a first rate story. So don't feel bad. Like other people try to make you feel guilty about stuff. That doesn't mean I should feel guilty or I should feel limited about what I can do because I know what I can do. You wrote a column in July that I freaking loved. And it was called uh, Rich White Coaches Want Football in a Pandemic, but Unpaid White <laughs> are Most at Risk. Yes. And I just want a, a paragraph in here you wrote. You wrote, so if you're confused about why a mainly white group of coaches and administrators would encourage a largely black group of athletes to resume practice, even as COVID-19 cases surge in states like Florida and South Carolina, remember that rich decision makers assume little of the risk. Money motivates the push to salvage college football this season 
or race underpins it all. And I was thinking about a few things with this. Um, yes. Someone, I was screaming about this from the moment this started, how yes. my, big, my big thing that drives me up a fucking wall is white coaches from rich universities descending into dilapidated neighborhoods across America with uh, underfunded schools, with mm-hmm. terrible after-school programs, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. They've been denied for years. They've been underfunded for years. Showing up with a flyer, showing their, you know, the University of Texas's Every kid gets a PlayStation blah, blah, in their locker. Yes. And, and it's basically like showing up at kindergarten with a boatload of candy and saying, come yes. here and you can have all the candy. It drives me crazy. And I thought this, like your comment spoke to it a million times over. And yet it didn't come off as like, I've written about this a little bit and I always come off like an angry asshole. You do not come off as an angry asshole. You come <laughs> off as a reasoned deep breath, Maybe you weren't that angry about this. Maybe it was just an, an issue for you. But like, is there a way to write with control when you're pissed off about something? Oh, that's a good question. And, um, and that's something, honestly, like throughout my career, people like, compliment me on. Part of it is that I don't react, I reflect, mm-hmm. right? And part of it is that uh, there's a difference between hitting a punching bag and actually sparring and actually being in there with someone. So you hit a punching bag, it's all offense. And you can hit that thing as, as hard as you want, as fast as you want, and um, unleash like all your pent up anger. Uh, if you do that in a fight, you're going to get knocked out. You're going to wind up like uh, Nate Robinson against Jake Paul. Jake Paul is not like a professional boxer, but he trains boxing pretty much full time, right? He trains with professional boxers. So he knows what to do when someone runs at him face first. So in writing columns like this, I do have this little voice in my head, especially if I'm writing for an audience that I know is largely white and Canadian that's going to say, what about this? What about that? And just finding ways in each paragraph just to shut down those questions as I'm writing the story. So that's what, that's what comes across. But that, that, again, that's a question of reflecting more than reacting. And it's also a question of, um, especially as it re- relates to college football, the exploitative nature of that sport is not new to me. So I don't have to react to it. I can just talk about it, explain it because this is is not like a fresh outrage to me. This is like more of a longstanding disgust with the way that sport is set up. So So for me to talk about these universities sending these young men out here, risking their health on several fronts, like this is in addition to the ways that these young men already risk their health. It's not that hard to explain it, to explain that calmly while, while, while still conveying uh, how disgusted I am with the situation. That takes practice too, right? I don't think I have that. Like I, um, I'm horrified. Like I, and I'm actually horrified by how few people seem horrified. Like everyone's like, the big horror is, oh my God, Ohio State only gets to play X number. Of <laughs> and it's right. like, what the fuck are you people talking about? Like they should not be playing. This is insane. There are a bunch of African-American kids with a white coach making $10 million a year. And the only reason they're playing is because there's so much money to be made. And these kids aren't going to see any of it. And it is absolutely freaking insane. And I want to punch someone. Like one of the subplots of the whole pandemic is just different stakeholders, just trying to get us to lower our standards. Yeah. And so we've lowered our standards on what we think is dangerous or unacceptable because we already 
as a society, we're at the point where we could accept people risking their health in return for no money. And now we've lowered the standard yet again, because they, the, the pandemic has added this new layer of risk. But if you just beat people over the head with this message long enough, they'll drop their guard. They'll drop their objection and say, oh, no, it's not a problem. College football, they're getting compensated. In, um... And also the other thing about college football is that technically it's amateur. The players aren't paid. From the player's standpoint, it's professional in the sense that that's their job. That's their craft. That's their avocation. That's what they do more than they do anything else. And it's also just a, a for-profit venture. So it can masquerade as pro sports. So you can have the NFL during the pandemic and people accept it. And then you just kind of run college football out there in this opening that the NFL has created. And people just kind of accept them as equal, even though they are not equal. Because one, one group of people, the professionals, had a union help negotiate the terms of their return to the field, whereas the college football players were just told, this is what we're doing. Right. And you're not getting paid. Like the fascinating part to me about, and you mentioned this off the top about the football team uh, subsidizing all these other teams, is what happens in effect is that these working class, mostly black athletes that play football and men's basketball and to a lesser extent, women's basketball, to the lesser extent, meaning mm. it's not a big revenue generator everywhere, but it is at some schools. So if the argument is you need football and basketball to pay for these other sports, what other sports are they paying for? They're paying for golf, right? They're paying for rowing. They're paying for baseball, which these days is a country club sport. Like, don't let anyone fool you. Baseball, it's very expensive to, to be good at baseball. Oh, yeah. Why in the United States, you mostly see middle-class suburban white kids playing it. They're paying for tennis. So what we have now is a situation where these working class black kids are making money that doesn't go to them but funds programs that are full of white people whose parents have money. We know their parents have money because they play tennis. Or we can, it's, there's, there's a lot of crossover between people who have money and people who play tennis. Yeah, and so this whole setup is upside down. And for as much as, because there's also a big overlap between people who don't want college football players to get paid and then people who cry about socialism. Can't have... Uh, healthcare for all that's socialism yeah okay well but what do you call a system where i do the work and y'all get the money that's your nightmare vision of socialism yeah. here i am doing this thing that provides value and i don't get to enjoy the value everyone else does right that's your nightmare vision of socialism but you 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 like it when it takes the form of black football players and basketball players making the money that makes the the coaches rich and also allows tanner and becky to have their tennis scholarship. First of all, nice job with Tanner and Becky. <laughs> I would have thrown in Mackenzie, but that was pretty <laughs> that <good. too. laughs> Here's a weird question. Yep. Do you feel like that kind of column, rich white coaches want football and pandemic, but unpaid black players are most at risk. Do you feel like when people see it was a black man writing the column, it allows people to say, ugh, just another black guy whining about blah, blah, blah. If a white writer, male or female, writes that, is it received differently? And I don't know if that means better or worse. Or is it received differently? I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure how it would go over. In general, though, like in this industry, and this is no disrespect to like bilingual white people, right? But especially covering baseball, you get a white guy that speaks Spanish, whether he's in the media or a player, that person 
is a hero. Let's look on the Astros. One of the Astros, really good with Spanish. Maybe it's Bregman. And, you know, and Alex Anthopoulos here, when he was in Toronto, he's trilingual. He speaks Spanish, speaks French, because he grew up in Montreal. And the difference between how beat writers perceived Anthopoulos's trilingualism and Jose Bautista's bilingualism is night and day. Like when Jose Bautista spoke really clean English, they were shocked and like amazed. Where did he learn how to speak English? And I'm like, well, the man's bilingual. Like the general manager here is bilingual. There are people that are fluent. And, and what gets forgotten, like with in baseball, especially, it's like you see a bilingual white guy, it's like seeing a unicorn. But I'm like, well, you know who else is bilingual? Like all the Latino guys, they all speak yeah. Spanish and they speak good enough English to live. So, you know, but for the white guy, it's always treated as something special. And what I have, like, what what I can say, though, like, more generally in this industry, and this is not, like, me bragging about myself as much as it's, like, the cases I've had to make to different managers and decision makers, is that, like, if there was a white person that had this, the the different skills, like, the skill set and the knowledge base that I have, they wouldn't have been in a position, you know, for the last few years trying to wrangle with managers for some breathing room and, a role suited to their skills. Right. Like if I was at some other company and someone, this other company saw a white person like me who could do what I do, award-winning, bilingual, can cover sports on the field, sports business, blah, 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 and can work on different platforms. It wouldn't be a question of that white person having to haggle with management every year for some breathing room. Management from that other company would go to that white person and say, what do you want to do? And how much money do you want? Come on over. So in, in the sense of a column like the one I wrote, it might go over differently from a white person. What we do know, like in general on race, is that white people take white people like so much more seriously than they take everyone else. And a lot of times it takes a white person observing something before other white people say, oh, yeah, well, I guess that's true. <laughs> and so, yeah, if I was a white guy or a white girl, maybe that might have gone over differently. But like, that's not something I can control with CBC, like I'm a freelancer at CBC, but these guys, they, you know, they believe in me. They're like, hey, we're not even gonna ask you how big of a platform you want. We're just gonna give you a big platform and that's that. Right. Um, which is a different experience for me as opposed to like having to fight for real estate all the time. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son Emmett, who has a brilliant idea. 504 Sports. Hey, <laughs> what? So your sponsor is 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. And they have hats and t-shirts and all sort of amazing stuff for fans at 503-sports.com. So why don't we start 504 Sports? What are we going to sell at 504 Sports? Easy. Ewok-inspired gummies and underwear for hummingbirds. Oh, and statues of Blaine Gabbert. Blaine Gabbert? I'm tired of doing all the big thinking around here. You had the honor and privilege of covering the 2010 Toronto Blue Jays. Yes. <laughs> uh, or otherwise known as the Lyle Overbay Blue Jays. Yes. Uh, you were a baseball beat writer for a brief period of time. Do you love or hate covering a baseball team? Here's the thing about covering baseball. Right? Like the baseball beat, it can go one of two ways, right? So you can go from covering a team to becoming just like the baseball go-to person. And like that becomes your career. You know, but in the long run, you become Tyler Kepner or um, Verducci, or you work the baseball beat for a few years, and then that catapults you into either becoming columnist or like uh, like a feature writer. 
so I did it for two years, but I didn't get a chance to follow like that evolution because of regime change. I got caught up in some regime change, but baseball, <laughs> here's the things I'll say about covering baseball. Like one, it was a little bit harder on the 29, 2009 and 2010 Blue Jays because that team was so average. If they were really good or really bad, there would have been more to write about, but just like they were, you know, they won as often as they lost. 85 <laughs> and 77, the Toronto Blue right. Jays. Yeah. Right. But the thing about the baseball beat, not so much now because people don't have money and we'll see what happens on the other end of the pandemic. But in those days, baseball is a really expensive beat to cover because you have to go to spring training and you have to travel a lot. And so if a company, if a newsroom assigns you as the beat reporter on the, on the big league team, it's a vote of confidence in you in that they are investing in you and your work above and beyond your salary. They're paying you your salary anyway, but now they have to pay for you to gather news. Whereas if you're just a GA reporter, what you cost them in salary is what you cost them. Yeah. And that's that. Yeah. And that was never lost on me, but like getting the baseball job, that was an opportunity I had to create for myself. But in terms of the job itself, it was, just, it was a lot of standing around is what I remember. A lot of standing around. A ton of standing around. Yes. Um, you know, game stories aren't that hard. Like, don't let anyone tell you. Even, you know, I came up in the, uh, we don't write game stories anymore era. We got to write, okay, guys, I get it. I get it. I get it. Like, I will write the game story. There's not, you don't have to tell me not to write a play-by-play of nine innings. Fine. And so one of the things I did to, like, make it, make the baseball beat, like, a little more interesting was the fact that uh, I came to the beat speaking some Spanish. The Spanish I spoke was basically enough to know that translators didn't always tell us the truth, but not enough to go interview people for myself. And so I went to the boss and said, Hey, look, if the company pays for me to take Spanish classes, I can hit the baseball beat. Like I can hit the ground running and, and interview you guys that don't speak good English or interview guys that just uh, like to try to give you the uh, Sammy Sosa. I don't speak English all of a sudden. Yeah. And so that was what I did. And I started taking classes and like, listening to a lot of music, all this stuff. And one of the people that really helped me with my Spanish actually was Jose Bautista because that first year on the beat 2009, he was just a guy. He wasn't like a star. So he had time to just chit chat with reporters and talk about whatever. And even the second year when he was turning into a star, he was still that person. So he actually, he helped me, you know, expand not just my vocabulary, but my, my knowledge of like Caribbean slang, which is very different from what you'd ever learn in class, but that also allowed me to just get into different corners of the locker room that other people wouldn't get into um, and connect with these stories about like the broader global baseball industrial complex, you know, get into these stories about how players get here from Cuba, how they get here from Venezuela right. um, that people weren't really writing back then. So, but those are some of the things, you know, that you wind up having to do to make coverage more interesting when the team itself wins every night, wins one night and loses one night for the whole season. Yeah. How are your standing around skills now? Do you feel like you really developed them from covering baseball? Are you, are you good? Let's say you're in a mall now and you have to stand around. Are you pretty good at standing around? Yeah, I'm very good at standing around. And one of the things I wound up doing, uh, it was after I was off the baseball beat, but I talked the foreign editor into sending me to Venezuela in 2012 to go write about, you know, how players develop there. And I don't know what Venezuela is like now. I understand like, inflation's gone way up and like every problem that they were confronting in the fall of 2012 has become much worse 
But back then, like, all that drama was still there, but, like, people still lived. And the only four words, and they asked me this at customs when I was leaving the country, like, what I thought of Venezuela. And I was like, the only four words you need to know while you're down there are, estoy en una cola. I'm in a lineup. <laughs> because there were lines for everything. Yeah. So two years on the baseball beat, they trained me well for my time in Venezuela waiting for stuff. I've told the story before, but I remember when I was covering baseball at Sports Illustrated, and I had to talk to a, a relief pitcher for the Giants named Tim Worrell. I was like, hey, uh, Tim, can I bother you? you know, Jeff Perlman, Sports Illustrated. He goes, yeah, I'm busy now, but let's talk later. And he literally sits back down with his Field and Street magazine. And I'm literally, I'm standing waiting yes. to see more out and he's reading field and stream. Like he knows I'm there and he has to read his field and stream. And that is a moment when I was like, I'm in the wrong business. This is the wrong that, thing. For me. That, but that is covering baseball. Yes. That is covering baseball. And the only thing that makes me feel better about you telling me that story is that the, the sports illustrated people got it too. And not just the local guys. Oh yeah. Um, because the perception is that whoever blows you off from the local team day to day will always make time for sports illustrated. It turns out they only sometimes make time for Sports Illustrated. Did you perfect the, um, the art of standing and waiting and looking like you're busy doing something, even though you were absolutely doing nothing, just waiting? Yeah, and uh, smartphones really helped that. I don't know how you guys did it back in the day, but at least by the time I got on the beat, we had Blackberries and yeah. could look really busy, even though I'm, you're just sending your girlfriend to BBM. But you can look busy, look like you're working your sources for something. That's awesome. Yeah, baseball, it was fun while it lasted. And I like the fact there was just a lot of travel. So I could like, every city you go, you know, you, if you know somebody, you can catch up with them and like take them to lunch on, on, on the company's dime. But in terms of, it was just, it was too much standing around. Let me ask you a final thing. You were, uh, you did an eight part series. I'm dating you a little bit here. Yes. Back in 2003 called Long Shots. Yes. And um, I was reading it before. It's freaking brilliant, man. It was just, it was basically you following around. Am I getting it right? The Jean Veneer Catholic? Vanier. And this is one of the things that always happens. Like Canadians see French words and pronounce them in French. Yeah. Americans see French words and pronounce them in English. Some places people get crossed up. And so when I see an American with a French name, I don't ever try to pronounce their name yeah. because I don't know how they're going to say it. Like the running back for, for Clemson. If he comes to Canada, he's Travis Etienne. But he's at Clemson, so he's Travis Etienne. So... You did this eight-part series where you follow around basically a high school basketball team. Yeah. And it was this deep, deep, deep dive. And, and I'm reading it, and I'm actually really riveted by the whole thing. You're in the locker room. They gave you, obviously, great access. And you're like, the tension is palpable. A stranger to the school might find the scene almost menacing. Inside the gym, a group of teenage boys stand scowling against one wall. They're too tough to sit in the stands and too cool for school spirit. So they lean with arms folded, or they use one hand to cup an elbow while the other strokes a baby hair goatee. They wear their hair in cornrows. I and remember those guys. You do? <laughs> yeah. Some short, shiny black quilted uh, jackets. Today is dress down day. No school uniforms required. So they wear jeans baggy enough to fit a second pair of legs and sagging to just the right degree of thug. Their eyes travel as you walk past, sizing you up from head to toe, appraising you. Are you Mother Teresa or Jean Vanier? A little more emphasis on the first syllable, Vanier. Coach or cop, friend or foe. The gym fills with spectators and there's a surge of noise and excitement. Inside, the lighting seems unusually low. There's more dark than light in the rafters. The court looks like dust on a cloudy day. But the darkness doesn't dampen school spirit. It's 20 minutes to game time. First of all, it's great. It's one thing to embed, which I've done, most people have done, you've probably done, at least for some period, with a bunch of adults. 
to do that with a bunch of teenagers, a basketball team for this huge eight part series was like, what were the complications of it? What were the joys of it? And I guess, um, why'd you even do it? I'll tell you what happened with that story. That story changed the trajectory of my career because I had an internship at the star. I worked there for a year and then let us all go. They were like, bye guys. And then they wound up bringing me back the next year as the scoreboard page editor, the sports agate editor. And like, this job doesn't even exist anymore. Right. And they sold me on the job as like, okay, you lay out the scoreboard page. Like that's your job nominally, but you know, you write in whatever spare time you have. And then when a job, when a writing job opens up, we'll promote you. But it turned out that that job was where the stepping stone met the glass ceiling. Right. Cause it was such a low ranking job that if, if they promoted me to a writing job, then they would have to fill the scoreboard page job. All right. And if they didn't feel like going outside the company, no one in the company was going to volunteer to take that job because it's going to be a step down no matter where you were. So I was in this position where I was writing and doing the scoreboard page, but just kind of, again, hitting the glass ceiling. And so what a few things happened at one time, at, like back to back to back. So when we got a new sports edit, editor, the guy that hired me, he moved up the food chain. We got a new guy named Graham Parley. That name might not mean anything to you and your listeners, but the name Chris Jones probably means something to you and your listeners. So he was Chris Jones's sports editor at the National Post in Toronto. And so when Graham Parley took over, I said, hey, Graham, I'm the scoreboard page editor, but, you know, I write by, like, that's what I do. And uh, here, take a look at my clips. And he, like, I gave them to him. They're like in a little portfolio. He gave them right back to me. He said, this could all be edited, meaning if it's good, it's probably because of the editor, not <laughs> because I was a good writer. <laughs> and that was that. Like, he treated me like I was an idiot. But one of the things I had done that fall is I had done a couple stories for Slam Magazine. Ben Osborne and Ryan Jones, they had assigned, like, I had managed to talk them into buying one story, and then they assigned me another one. Uh, and one of them was about a basketball player in Toronto, a high school basketball player who was killed right before he was supposed to go away to prep school. And his half-brother was Jamal McGlure from the, from who was with Charlotte at the time. Yeah. And so when that magazine comes out, there was the story about Jamal McGlure. And I had another one in King magazine, same company about Antonio Davis and his fitness regimen. So then I took those clips and I showed them to the sports editor. And now because someone from New York had published me, he's interested, right? He's like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is, if you have any Canadians listening, they can tell you this is a story of, Canadian life is that Canadians will treat other Canadians like nothing until someone from the United States gives them the stamp of approval. And all of a sudden people start looking at you differently. All right. So then basically what's happening is the city editor and the sports editor have decided that they want to collaborate like on something immersive, maybe about high school basketball, but they don't know who they want to write it. And then when I wrote those stories for slam then the sports editor, then the light bulb go goes off on his head. Hey, I can get Morgan to write it. And so then that was how I wound up being assigned to this story, but I could make it what I wanted it to be. They just knew they wanted something immersive about high school basketball, but also about the city. So I found a team to cover. And the reason I chose that team is because their best player was in his first full year back at school after suffering a traumatic brain injury. He got hit by a car. It was a couple of weeks in a coma. And so this was his first full year back at school. Um, so that was how that story kind of came to be. So back then the immersion was easy because I was only like 26 turning 27. I so I wasn't that much older than the players. I didn't have gray hair or anything like that. So they just thought like I was one of them basically. 
and just and I would just show up at the school almost every day, show up at practice, sometimes show up like just towards the end of the school day and go go to go to class with people. So for a while I was a curiosity, but then they just kind of forgot I was there. Or again, they would just treat me like a team manager. The difference being I just had this notebook. <laughs> I was always writing stuff down. Right. So that part of, of like the immersion wasn't very difficult. You know, and then you find different things in common with different people and you have a, a point of connection and then they open up to you more. So like the, the guy in that story, who's the point guard, his name is Nedry Simmons. You know, he's a little short guy like me. I'm 5'7", he's 5'7", but then he found out that I had played football in college. So now I was like, I was what he wanted, what he aspired to, right? It was like this undersized college athlete. And Nedry's dad was a boxer and Nedry was so surprised and flattered and endeared that I knew who his father was that uh, he started showing me all kinds of stuff about his career as a boxer, et cetera, et cetera. So the immersion part was not difficult. Like the difficult part was just taking all that information and distilling it into eight chapters that totaled probably about 10,000 words or whatever it was. But like the, the immersion part was actually not that hard. The kids could tell I was still like athletic. So I, it wasn't like I was some guy that like didn't speak the language of sport and couldn't do the language of sport like because most of the, to the extent that they've been exposed to reporters that you know it was like fat middle-aged dudes who were from another planet but i actually was coming from they were from where they were coming from so the immersion part wasn't bad but basically what happened with that story was i did that story while i was still the, the scoreboard page editor so i would go spend the afternoons with the with the basketball team then come downtown and work at night until about two in the morning and then go home and just start the process again. Um, so I wound up working essentially seven days a week, <laughs> 12 hours a day for two or three months. But the thing about that story, and here's how it changed the trajectory of my career, because again, I was in, in another situation where I wasn't getting promoted into like the full-time writing jobs at the star. I would apply and get passed over. But that story got nominated for a national newspaper award. And so then sometime between the nomination in March and the ceremony in June, the company was like, we got to promote this guy because what we can't have is him at the National Newspaper Awards winning the award, people from all the other publications saying, people from the competition saying, what do you cover? Right. And then me saying, I don't cover anything because I'm not good enough to write at the star because every time I apply for a job, they tell me someone else is better. And so they're like, we got to promote this guy quick. So then the promotion came and then I wound up, and, but it wasn't into a sports job. It was like a, a, a news job. But if I was like the fourth, because there's three nominees, if I was number four that year, I don't know what I would be doing. I was stuck. I was stuck. When I, when I was at SI, I got there as a reporter, which is a pretty low-level position. Yeah. And there was a story I, I always wanted. When I was, a, I started my career at the Tennessean, and I learned about, I don't know, you seem like you're a boxing guy. Right. I know what you're going to mention. Yes. And I remember this. And I remember your byline hundred percent. I know exactly where you're going. So there's a story, Billy Collins about a guy. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm flattered. So, um, I knew about the story. I was covering a boxing match in Nashville at the Tennessee and Billy Collins dad was a ref. And the guy sitting next to me was like, do you know about the ref? And I'm like, no. And he's like his son. He had the padding pull out of his, you know, his opponent. Yeah. And I was in my head and I was at SI. I was fighting to move up, fighting to move up. I, I did not pitch that story because I knew they would give it to Gary Smith or like Rick Riley. I did not want that to happen. <laughs> so I spent my own money, flew around, went to find Louis Resto, the guy who fought him and yeah. flew to yeah. Tennessee. And I handed in this story 
And I would say that was my big break story at Sports Illustrated. I, I do think like you, everyone's like, well, what's the key to making a journalism? What's the key to making a journalism? There's a lot of little keys here and there. And, exactly. But maybe the biggest key, are you willing to chase a story the way you did or the way I did? Or are you just waiting for stories to come to you? Or are you just taking the lazy stories? Because sometimes you just have to fucking bust your ass and do it yourself. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because if you wait for other people, it's not going to happen. Um, and, <laughs> and it's amazing, too, because like growing up, Sports Illustrated was one of these like dream jobs. Um, I don't know how much of a dream job it is now, no, but no. Back, back then. But um, for you to say that the same type of politics were at play, where if you had pitched that story, somebody would have said, hey, nice idea, kid. Let's go uh, assign oh. it to someone who someone with a bigger name. Yeah. Um, like that happened to me two two years in a row covering uh, MLB playoffs, where I would get my playoff credential, and I would start booking flights because management hadn't told me not to do it. So the columnists and I would be dividing up these assignments, and the sports editor would step in and be like, "Nope, I don't care if you already spent money on that flight. We're going to eat the money because you're not going to the playoffs. The other columnist is going." I was. Basically, later at SI, I was kind of Verduti's caddy, and I would Verduti's caddy, and I would just get the crumbs, yeah. right? And one guy I cultivated a relationship with was Sean Green of the Dodgers, former Blue Jay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Sean Green and I, both Jewish, we talked Jewish stuff, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And I remember one week, they're like, we, we need to do a Sean Green profile. Michael Bamberger, you're doing Green. And I was like, no, I know this guy. I know this guy. I have a good relationship with him. No, we're getting Bamberger to do it. That feeling, which you had with the playoffs, which I had right there, (laughs) when you know you're the guy to do this story, and they don't see it, it just is crushing. It's the worst. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, again, um, I didn't know that kind of thing was happening in Sports Illustrated, although I should have suspected, like, it's a big place, right? And I'm sure it's full of big egos. But that was, yeah, like, that defined my tenure as a a baseball writer. And that's one of the reasons why I was like, baseball – it wasn't my choice to leave the beat, but at the same time, I was like, there's not a lot of, like the big payoffs don't, aren't coming for me. Well, Morgan, I appreciate you doing this, man. Seriously. You're a great, great, great writer. Love your stuff. So I appreciate it. And listen, and I just, I'm like, I'm so honored to have been invited. And also like, I'm honored that, like, that you said that because people, whatever, I hear compliments. Oh, you're a great writer, but that's mostly from my friends, like people who are predisposed to do it. People who don't do this for a living. right? Yeah. So for someone's, who does this for a living and who's writing I, I admire, that means a lot to me. I want to thank today's guest, Morgan Campbell, for joining me on Two Writers Slingin' Yang. You can follow Morgan on Twitter at Morgan P. Campbell and read his work at cbc.ca. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Slingin' Yang, please consider giving it a nice review. It means a lot. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. <laughs>